This podcast was recorded Thursday, February 1st at 10.30 a.m. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Like the powers that be, whomever they are, will pick a month other than January to encourage people to avoid alcohol. Cold, gray January is a tough month to go dry in Ohio. Just saying. But the sun's out today. Let's talk politics. This is Snollygoster, WOSU Public Media's weekly look at Ohio politics. And all those Snollygosters, those shrewd politicians who look for your vote, I'm Mike Thompson. Coming up in the podcast, our Snollygoster of the Week award goes to conspiracy theorists. They are running wild in the lead up to the Super Bowl. But first, the death penalty debate has returned to Ohio. Capital punishment has basically been dormant for years, mainly because Ohio cannot get the drugs it needs to execute condemned inmates through lethal injection. A federal judge has also ruled the state's protocol causes severe pain and needless suffering. Ohio last executed an inmate in 2018. But now a new method has surfaced, nitrogen gas. Alabama used it last week to execute convicted murderer Kenneth Eugene Smith. Alabama officials called it humane and effective. Critics called it cruel and experimental. Following the execution, Attorney General Dave Yost and two state reps, as well as the head of the Ohio Prosecutors Association, called on state lawmakers to pass a bill to allow Ohio to use nitrogen gas. Yost says the new method could restart Ohio's capital punishment system. I am aware of the moral weight of this debate, but... This is the law of the land. Governor DeWine would not comment on the bill or another bill that would abolish the death penalty in Ohio. DeWine has not ordered an execution in his time as governor, and he seems to have doubts about its effectiveness. I think it does raise a, a, a you know, serious question whether or not it is, in fact, a deterrent. So, you know, I've made a decision, frankly, we have a lot of things to deal with in the state, uh, a lot of very important issues. Uh, at this point, I'm just not going to comment beyond that. Joining us now is a man who is very familiar with the death penalty and executions in Ohio. Gary Moore served as director of the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections from 2011 to 2018. He oversaw the executions of 15 Ohio death row inmates. This week, he wrote an op-ed for the Columbus Dispatch. Gary Moore, welcome to Snollygoster. Hello, and by the way, I'm not running for political office. <laughs> no, you're not. You are not a Snollygoster, as we will get to uh, <laughs> in, in our conversation. Your op-ed was far from uh, uh, shrewd and, uh, and, and selfish. It, it was a really thoughtful piece, and we'll get to that in a minute. You wrote in that op-ed that you are horrified by the prospect of using nitrogen gas as a way to execute condemned inmates. Why do you say that? I, I did say that, and um, you earlier referred, to, uh, someone referred to the process as uh, experimental. Um, you know, ending a, a person's life is, uh, is a powerful act, and I think it's imperative that we are certain uh, that we are doing, ending that life with some sense of dignity, not just for the condemned, uh, but also for the people that are the executioners, uh, and I was clearly a part of that execution team. And, and I have to t- say, in my experience, um, 
early in my experience, we used a single drug uh, that ended life peacefully. I, I, I would have to say that. And then those drugs were taken from us. And since that time, since we went to a three-drug protocol, and now with the introduction of, uh, of nitrogen, uh, we are experimenting uh, with, the, with ending of life. And as you know, um, uh, with the Hippocratic Oath, agencies and systems are exploring these methods uh, without the uh, support of a doctor or guidance. Uh, as, uh, so it, it's an experimental way of ending a person's life. And I think um, we ought to be very, very careful putting something in law that is fairly stationary uh, and being in law uh, that we are uncertain in terms of its, um, its effectiveness in terms of ending life uh, with some degree of dignity and peace. Yeah, this execution in Alabama, this is the first time it's been used in the United States. It is used in other countries, but uh, it took 20 or so minutes uh, for the person, the inmate, to, be, to die, to be declared dead. The, the witnesses recount that he struggled and writhed on the table for about two minutes before he you know, became calm. Um, so when you hear that, uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, I, I mean, I... I I don't like what I hear, but I also um, recall in my history uh, recollections of executions where people have um, said, so I'm not, I'm not certain that that is true. Mm -hmm. uh, what I am concerned about is the length of time it took, and that was always an issue. And when I stood as a defendant in federal court, uh, the length of time it took to end someone's death, and that, that is disturbing. Um, so... I, you know, I just believe, um, you know, a, a person is a human being, regardless of their uh, status in prison or on death row. And um, and I think as a country and as a human, as a society, we ought to be concerned about the dignity and peacefulness of ending life. And th those indicators certainly didn't indicate that it was peaceful. Yeah. And this person had, they had tried to use lethal injection with this person in the past, but uh, could not, could not find a vein from what I understand. And which has also mm -hmm. been an issue here in Ohio on occasion. Uh, we talk about, we, we obviously we, we talk about a lot, whether it is painless for the person being executed, but you write in your op-ed and you, and you can comment on the burden it has on staff. What is it like to be on that execution team? Well, let me just say this um, on a personal note. Uh, I didn't sleep the night, the nights before executions. And let me, let me say this is Ohio's different. And at least it was different during my eight years. Uh, judge Frost, who was a federal judge, uh, indicated that executions could continue, but only if I, as the director made every decision regarding the condemned person from 30 days before the execution, which includes things like moving from one cell to another and allowing visitation uh, through the execution, um, and which was a, a significant burden, but it also made me um, uh, very close and uh, uh, clearly a part of the execution team. Uh, and, and that team, uh, Ohio should be very thankful that it had a, a, a caring team uh, that 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 I experienced for my eight years. So, 
Um, so I didn't, I didn't, and you know, I didn't sleep before the uh, executions. And quite frankly, I didn't sleep last night. Mm-hmm. Um, as as we think about executions, um, the impact lingers. Uh, the impact is still uh, with me, uh, and I certainly can't talk or won't talk about uh, the impact on other members. But um, it uh, it has lasted uh, with me through today. And when these this topic comes up, um, I have a tendency, and just like I did when I testified in, in front of the legislature a couple months ago, uh, it was a sleepless night the night before. So I in essence, kind of reliving uh, the experience. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I know it's something that I'll never lose. Did you at one point support capital punishment? Did you oppose it? No, I, I, I did not. But and, and, and let me say this. I've been, you know, thought of as a hypocrite, quite frankly. Uh, and I'd like to talk about sure. that. I took the job. Uh, I, actually, I told uh, John Kasich, uh, I turned him down four times before I took this job. And then I met with him for three hours one day uh, in late December 2010, uh, and we developed a relationship of trust during those three hours of debate and argument. Um, And at that moment in time, I saw being director of the agency as having significant opportunity to do a couple things. One, uh, reduce the population of 51,000 people in, in prison and the cost. And I would just say that the day I started in Ohio's prisons, July 1st, 1974, we had 8,400 in prison. And the day I took over as director, we had 51,000. Wow. I'm not, I, I'm not sure Ohioans feel safer today than they did in 1974 either. Uh, but that's that's our path. That's our path. So, but but there was opportunities. There's also opportunities because I believed in my heart that people can change, and I believe that the correctional system is the has the greatest opportunity to provide public safety than anyone else. And if you think about it, uh, we had fifty one thousand people who were convicted felons in our care and custody, and if we have the opportunity through cognitive based programming, uh, and, and through other means of discipline to turn their lives around and support a positive life, a life without crime, then we have an opportunity to reduce future crime victims. So with all of that, and, and I've now have 50 years of experience in this, in this work, uh, at, at that time I had over 40 and I thought it was an opportunity of a lifetime to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. But the burden of executions was was part of the price to pay for that, mm-hmm. and so I've I have I have never supported it, but as a civil servant and acting within the scope of my responsibilities as director, I did lead the execution process in Ohio for eight years, um, and and whether you know quite frankly whether I'll be judged, how I'll be judged I don't know uh, I think about that often. Uh, but it was a price that I had to pay in order to to try to reform, as John said, uh, the most unreformed part of government. Um, and and he gave me tremendous 
freedom to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you don't make uh, the laws; you just you, you you carry them out as, as ordered by the governor. Ultimately, as ordered by the governor. You you, you tell a story of how you you would speak to inmates, condemned inmates, um, shortly before the execution occurred. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, you know this is a tough subject, and it gets tougher when you get to that question. Yeah, um, you know, early in my tenure. Uh, as, as director, you know, we went through the protocol, very strict. Uh, I, I made it to Lucasville and we had a we had a process of speaking to the media, speaking to the um, inmates family and representatives and then going in and speaking to the victims families and victims representatives. And then after that, you know, I, I passed through, talked to the team and in the cell there was the person that I was going to put to death in, in a few minutes. And I, I always stopped at the cell and, and said some things that, that quite frankly, um, you know, what do you say? You, you, you know, it's hard. Yeah. So I decided this director that I was going to do whatever I could to make this event as, as difficult as it was to make this event um, as impactful as possible and as, as I hate to say positive, but as positive for people as possible. And so I, 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 I decided that I would go into the cell of the individual, and the staff did not like that. Um, my, my comment was, if I, if I start getting clobbered in there, uh, I'm paying you enough money to get me out of there. <laughs> but they didn't like it. But I, I decided that as director to try to have as much influence as possible. I opened a cell door, went into the cell with the person I was about ready to execute. And, I, I, and I'm not a biblical. I'm, I, I go to church every Sunday. I'm, a, I'm an old Lutheran. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I'm no biblical scholar in, 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 in that regard. But there was a, a story out of Matthew, the book of Matthew, that always stuck with me. And it was that that the landowner that 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 went out and, and hired people at six o'clock in the morning to harvest and didn't have enough, went back at nine o'clock and hired another group and then at noon and three and five that same day. And and all he he promised them a, a full day's wage. And at the end of at six o'clock, he had the paymaster start paying people that that worked only an hour at five o'clock and paid them a full day's wage. And he did the same for the people that worked at three, uh, that started at three and started at noon and started at nine. And the people at six o'clock in the morning, the route there, and I, apparently it was a very hot day, uh, were very they were mad because they'd been out there all day and got the same full day's wage as the person that worked an hour. And I stopped there, and, and I didn't read this. I, I probably would have been sued if I would have read it. And, and by the way, I, regardless of, of their religion or lack of religion uh, or faith, regardless of any of those characteristics, I always walked in and said, you know, I've got a story I'd like to share, and it's as much for me as it probably is for you. And I said, but if you don't want to hear it, then, then don't. And, and I always prefaced that. Mm -hmm. Everyone wanted to hear it. I think it was probably to delay the, the process. But I told that story, and, and I told the story. I said, you know, I'm no biblical scholar, but that story tells me two things. One, whatever God promises, God delivers. 
and he promised those people a full day's wage, and he's promised us everlasting life. But secondly, it doesn't make any difference. It didn't make any difference in that story, and I don't believe it makes any difference now. At what point in time someone comes to the realization that there is life after last, after after death, and that there is a creator up there, um, that they come to that release, I believe that there's an opportunity for peace after death. And a number, most people looked at me, shook my hand, and said, I'll see you later. Hmm. And I, I would have to tell you, and I'm no judge, we shouldn't be judging down here, but I looked into the eyes of the people that I was about ready to execute, and I saw people that I believed believed, and I believed were ready to take their last breath uh, more than many people that, that you know, you, you associate with. Yeah. And, I, and I did it just quite frankly because... Um, I wanted in some way to try to maximize my role as director in a day that was the worst day that I, I spended in that role. Mm -hmm. Certainly, the very least, very empathetic to what the person was going through. And uh, um, we appreciate you telling that story. Getting to some of the uh, the arguments against the death penalty that you point out, you you spent all those years in the prison. You mentioned it, 50 years, give or take. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you saw plenty of people who were walking the yard, who did terrible crimes, but were not sentenced to death. And you thought that was a problem with the system. Yeah, you know, uh, I was warden at Chillicothe at one point. I, I was, I'm also I was a prison warden for 12 and a half years. And, and at Chillicothe, I had over 900 inmates in, inside my prison going to school and walking the yard that were lifers that had killed someone. And, you know, on occasion, wardens have to look at files and records to make recommendations, et cetera. So I, I had a sense of who I had in that prison. And I also had a real sense of who I was executing because the governor and I met on each individual before the executions took place. And, and quite frankly, I, I can tell you that we are not executing necessarily the worst of the worst. And I keep hearing that at the legislature, we're, we're actually, you know, worst of the worst. Well, how are we doing that? I mean, we have some counties that use the death penalty much more per capita than others, and some that don't use it. Uh, and, and I wonder if those counties are, are safer or not. Now, that would be an interesting data analysis uh, to look at. Uh, but but I, I don't believe that's the case. Yeah, um, Hamilton County is the one that that uh, advocates point to that uh, sees a lot, you know, a lot more executions than, say, Franklin County has. Her. Yeah. And, 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 then, and then, you know, I, I, you know, 13 percent, I think 13 or 14 percent of Ohio's population uh, is African-American uh, and over 50 percent of the people on death row are African-American. I, I I just think as a as a as a as a society, not as a director, even, but as a as as a as people, I think those questions should should be further debated. I mean, I think, and and I I was testifying one one day not too long ago, and an individual stood up who was serving, who was on death row, 
who was found to be innocent of his crime. And he was sitting in the, the hearing room with me, he had been released. And, you know, you think, and, and God forbid, you know, that I was involved in executing someone that, that didn't commit an offense, but, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult to know. Yeah. Getting back to your, to, of course, the, the victims of the survivors, the, the family members who have lost someone to a terrible crime, to a, to a murder, um, feel differently about the death penalty. They think it is, you know, a just penalty for a heinous crime. When you would meet with the, you would meet, you would give at least the family of the victim the opportunity to meet with you. What, what were your conversations with them like? I always met with the the uh, victims of the family that were that attended the um, the execution. Um, l- let me say there were some that clearly were looking forward to this to the day of the execution. There's no question, mm-hmm. and you know what? I understand that. I understand their feelings. Uh, there were some there that uh, really didn't want to be there, but felt an obligation and didn't want to witness what they were about ready to witness. Uh, it was, there was not a lot of consistency in that. But l- let me just say this, think about this. The the people that I executed, the 15, um, they're the average time from the act that they committed to the time of their execution was 30 years. Yeah. And one, I, I think that's a pretty clear indication. It's not a deterrent, but often in the victim's room were people that in some cases knew they were relatives. The, the, the person that uh, was, was killed was a relative, but didn't know them. So uh, the length of time is, is quite frankly an issue. And, um, and, and I always point to that when we talk about it being a deterrent, because I don't believe it is. Do you think looking longer term, I mean, it's been speculation. I guess there was some speculation even this week that Governor DeWine would say, you know, we're not going down the nitrogen gas route. Uh, but he, you know, he left it to the legislature and is waiting to see what happens, you know, in the Senate and the House should this bill get to his desk. Um, but there's some because he's a strong pro-life person. He might just say, look, I don't believe in the death penalty anymore as a former prosecutor. But he didn't go that far. But there are many people who think that yeah, this is just going to fade away. The death penalty in, in many states, Ohio being one, because it's so hard to do and the, the people are realizing that it takes too long, it's not a deterrent. Do you think it? You think we get to a point where the death penalty is not on the books anymore? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm the past president of the American Correctional Association uh, as well and had the opportunity to tour a number of, of, of well, about all states. And and I think there's a there's a slow trend of states uh, moving away from the execution process, or there has been over the last you know five to ten years. Uh, although the, the the subject is coming up again, and quite frankly, in a neighboring state of West Virginia, um, I, I I think that at some point the issue of racial disparity. Um, uh, and 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 the inconsistency of of some jurisdictions using it and some not, you know. Think of and and think of as simple as this. And I, this, this is strange. I think strangely in some ways, I guess. But 
you know, if we were two people in school, two students in school, and we responded to a test in the same manner, same responses, there's a general expectation we get the same grade. Yeah. As simple as that is, but as serious as ending someone's life, um, we we don't have that same sense of of consistency or, or need to be consistent, I think. And and I think at, at some point that will happen, uh, perhaps, but I think it's a very slow process. And, and you know, the pendulum swings, you know, I think we're seeing some some a pendulum swinging now in Ohio that that's considering it, quite frankly, a little, I didn't anticipate this, this uh, approach of nitrogen coming up, to be honest. So I think the pendulum uh, is swinging back, uh, back, uh, I think, towards it a bit with this piece of legislation that's been proposed. So yeah. I don't know. I think I the know. fact that there is an open governor's race coming up uh, <laughs> is, is playing a, a role in, in this uh, calls for the nitrogen, uh, just uh, to, br- to bring back the Snollygoster. Uh, yeah, uh, that's exactly what I was getting ready to say. We're, <laughs> we're getting back to the theme of the show. Yes, here. it's getting back to the, the, the shrewd politics. I know I, I witnessed one as a reporter, it witnessed a an execution is going to be coming up on 20 years ago, and it went without incident. It seemed to be that the the inmate died peacefully. It was the first one after a, a troubled one, and this one went much smoother. And I remember the victim's family was there, and they held a picture of the victim, and the, the, the inmate's family was there as well. I think his brother was there, and we were all there. And I just come out of that room and say, what was the point of that? You know, it had been 20 years since the crime was committed, and nobody seemed to be satisfied we never talked to the the family didn't talk to us that was fine but i didn't get the i didn't get the sense there was a whole lot of closure after that event so what was the point that was my question point yeah i think you know i think we believe and in some ways we truly hope that that at least that process brings closure but i didn't see that either uh in in many cases Uh, I, i think in some but uh, but when it happens, when it, and now it's my term as director, thirty years uh, between the act and and the execution, uh, you know, just it, it just takes it further and further uh, uh, away. So, well, Gary Moore, former director of the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, we appreciate your thoughts today. It's a very difficult topic, and. Uh, um, the debate is back for good or for bad, but uh, we are back talking about it here in the state of Ohio, and we appreciate your time on Snollygoster. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be right back. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, a little lighter now, a little lighter after a very heavy conversation. It's time now for our Snollygoster of the Week segment, where we honor the shrewdest political move or the shrewdest politician of the week. And this week, it kind of goes to a, a phenomenon. This week, it goes to Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, not for their talent, not for Kelsey making it to another Super Bowl, but for inspiring all kinds of wacky political conspiracy theories. All right, stay with me now because this gets a little complicated, but here is the conspiracy. that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are not really a couple. The deep state has put them together to, one, boost NFL viewing, 
to promote COVID vaccines. You know, Travis does those TV ads for Pfizer on television and to promote Democrats and Joe Biden. Ohio's Vivek Ramaswamy, former presidential candidate, says it's part of a plot for Swift and Kelsey to endorse Biden in the fall. And that's one of the more reasonable conspiracy theories involving Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift and politics. Look them up. You'll go down a rabbit hole, believe me. Now, there's one that I haven't heard yet, but I should mention that Trump supporter Ted Nugent is a fan of the Detroit Lions. The Lions, who blew a 17-point lead and failed to make the Super Bowl. A coincidence? He lost to San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi's hometown. Coincidence? Anyway, that'll do it for this week's edition of Snollig Austin, which is part of the NPR Network. As always, please be sure to leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and just tell your friends about us. For our student producer, Katie Genius, our digital producer, Michael DeBonis, and our audio engineer, Dalton Jones, I'm Mike Thompson for Snollygoster from WOSU Public Media.